Well, welcome to the uh, 1130 service of the North Richmond Hills campus of the Hills. If you're watching online, thrilled that you're with us. And if you're in Tarrant County in a couple of weeks, I encourage you to join us for the men's conference. It's one of my favorite weekends every year. We also every year have an awesome women's conference. And several years ago, it was the weekend of the women's conference. And I needed to come to my office for a few minutes. And so I came to the building knowing the women would be there, but not knowing that in their tremendous decoration of the entire building, they also commandeered the men's restrooms so that the ladies would have more places to go to the restroom. So I walked right into the men's restroom and quickly realized my mistake, not because women were in there, but because it had been decorated. I'm not making this up. There were flower arrangements in the urinals, which I'm sure violated at least two commandments in the book of Leviticus. Well, guys, we don't decorate the whole building. In fact, we don't decorate the building at all, but we do fill it with the smell of barbecue. And we play loud music and we laugh a lot and we fellowship and we grow. And could you download the messages, of course, but you would miss the experience of being with 2,000 men on fire for Jesus. So I hope you'll be here. Uh, if you register before Wednesday, guys, you get a $10 discount and students get a $5 discount. So join us and anticipate great things. Now, speaking of men, there was a conference some years ago of a very exclusive club. It was a meeting of the men who had walked on the moon. Now, that is one select fraternity. And one of the astronauts was asked, okay, you're on the moon, and you look off into space, and there's this big blue marble that is your home. What is going through your mind? And he replied, I remember thinking that our spacecraft was built by the lowest bidder. (laughs) Now, if you make a big trip, don't you want to think you can reach your destination before you start it? And yet I know so many people who want to spend their eternity with God in his heaven. But they're not sure they're going to reach that destination. And I've heard that uh, concern and anxiety expressed in so many ways, so many times, but they all basically come down to this. Can I count on my salvation? I've accepted Christ. I've been told I was saved. But can I count on what I've done to reach the home I want to reach? And the irony is, religion tends to promote anxiety instead of remove it. I remember as a boy being taught to ask people a question like this. If you died tonight, by the way, why is it always that you die at night? I'm just saying right now, if you don't know God, nighttime should be very scary. If you died tonight, the question asked, Why should God let you into his heaven? Now think about the implication of that question. How can you justify 
yourself in the presence of God. And the anxiety exists because it implies it all depends on what you have done. So, I'm going to relieve that anxiety in one statement. Are you ready? You will never do enough to get to heaven. Does everybody feel better? Aren't you glad you came to church? You will never do enough to get to heaven. But that's okay. Because what you do is not what counts. So I'm going to share a word today that I know is going to relieve some burdens. And I hope it's going to take away a lot of anxiety and fill you with some confidence and with some boldness. Because I'm going to share with you a road you can count on. But first, I have to blow up a road too many of us have been on. And here it is. I don't want you to count on being good enough as the basis for your salvation. All religions take the good enough road. And they give you a manual on how to be good enough. It might be Ten Commandments. It might be five pillars. But they're all saying this is what you have to do to justify yourself. But the be good enough road has two huge roadblocks. One is that it can't provide assurance because always there is this nagging suspicion that I'll never do enough. Some years ago, I went to get a physical, and a nice young lady attached a lot of uh, cables to my chest and put me on a treadmill and told me to start jogging. She turned on the treadmill, and I wanted to impress the young lady that I was fairly fit for someone my age, so I smiled and I began to run. We engaged in a nice conversation, and after a couple of minutes, she reached and turned a knob, and that treadmill went a little steeper in incline, and the belt began to go a little faster. But I just smiled and kept right up with it. And we just kept talking. And after a couple of minutes, she turned that knob again. And it got a little steeper and the belt began to go a little faster. And I started talking a little less because I started sweating some. And then she turned the knob again. And that's when I realized I will never beat this machine. No matter how hard I try, she can always crank up the expectation. And religion does the same thing. Because I'm not talking to anyone right now who believes you have done everything you should have done. I heard a preacher one time ask his church, Does anyone here think you have lived a perfect life? And a guy stood up. And the preacher said, oh, you think you have been perfect? He said, no, I'm standing for my wife's first husband. (laughs) I read about a guy named Paul Stewart some years ago. He taught law at the University of Nebraska, Omaha. He had a law degree. In fact, he was married to the dean of the College of Law of the University of Nebraska. But that's not why I read about him. I read about him because he was in jail. You see, 11 years earlier, 
he had left New York State with eight unsettled felonies on his record. For burglary, for larceny, even for abandoning the army. Now he knew the law. He taught the law. He even married the law. But he couldn't keep the law. And neither can we. And what happens as we're on the good enough road, and we know we haven't been as good as we ought to be, is we began to experience guilt. So what are we going to do to compensate for that guilt? Well, that leads us to the second big roadblock. What we do is we start to judge where other people are on the road. So that we can say, I know I haven't been as good as I could be, but I have been a lot better than them. And this makes Christians judgmental and proud. Like the Pharisee that went into the temple and prayed, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like other men. So this is what happens when you get on the be good enough road and it becomes the basis for your salvation. You deal with guilt because you know you don't do enough and then you become proud or arrogant because you start to find people you're better than. And here's the problem. God's standard for good enough is not the guy behind you on the road. God's standard for goodness is his own perfect intrinsic righteousness that's why Jesus once told a man no one's good but God alone the Bible says it's like this if if you were to compare your righteousness to the righteousness of God it would be like comparing filthy rags to perfect pure light And so, Paul tells the church in Rome, as the scriptures say, because this is the message of not just one verse, but the whole Bible. This is the message of the scriptures. No one is righteous. Not even one. Do you understand that if religion could get you where you want to go for eternity, if be good enough was the way to reach your eternal home, Jesus did not need to come. The law of Moses was a good religion. It gave you lots of rules to help you be a good person. See, that's the road Paul was on. And he thought he had everything on that road. And then one day, he encountered perfect, pure, brilliant righteousness. And the man who once thought he had everything suddenly realized, I got nothing. And he summed it up like this in Philippians 3. As for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Now, he doesn't mean he was perfect. He just means I'll put my resume up against anybody's. Nobody tried harder to be good enough than I did. Now, I once thought these things were valuable. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, 
counting it all as garbage. He doesn't just mean his bad things. He means his good things. I count it all. So that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. So here is religion's number one draft pick. And he's saying, I no longer count on being good enough as the basis of my salvation. In fact, he would probably say, I realize now my perception of my goodness was a bigger roadblock between me and God than my awareness of my badness. So Paul is saying, if you want confidence... If you want assurance, you need to learn a new way to count. And here it is. Back to Romans 4. We're going to stay there a little while. People are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. And Paul realized this isn't a new road. It's not like before Jesus we were on the good enough road and then Jesus came and now we're on a new road. No, Paul realized this is the only road there has ever been. The faith road. It's always been faith that counts. And so what Paul goes on to explain to the Roman church is that you take count of how God has always saved people. You see, in Paul's day, if you wanted to talk to someone about how does God save people, you couldn't open a New Testament. There wasn't one. So you opened your Old Testament and you went to the book of Genesis chapter 15 and you told people a story about a guy named Abraham. Now, you might not know that story, so let me just tell you real quick. Abraham and Sarah lived in a place called Ur in the region of Mesopotamia. And he was 75, she was 65, and they had no kids. And at this point in their life, they weren't planning that they would ever have kids. And then God came to them. And God said, Abraham, I want you to move. I want you to go to a place I will show you. I want you to leave everything you have and everything you know. And then God made this absurd, ridiculous, audacious promise. And I'm going to give you and Sarah a son. And from his seed, the rest of the world is going to get blessed. So Abraham and Sarah took off. And they got to this new land. And they lived there over 10 years. And no baby. And they're way past the point now of even remotely believing they can have a baby. So one night Abraham says to God, I guess I misunderstood. I thought you said son, but you must have said heir, right? And I've got a really good servant and I will adopt him and make him my heir. And then through him, I can become a father of nations. And God said to Abe, let's step outside. So they went outside and God said, look up at the sky. 
filled with stars. And God said, can you count the stars? And then God said, Abraham, from your own body will come a son. And from his children will be more descendants than you can count. And what came next is, I think, the most important doctrinal verse in the Bible. It's repeated in Romans. It's repeated in Galatians. It's repeated in James. It's the single most important verse for you to ever understand and find boldness in salvation. And here it is. For the Scriptures tell us, Abraham believed God. And God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Now, now, later he will get circumcised. And so some would start thinking, that's what you do to build a road. And Paul's going to say, no, he got counted as righteous a long time before he got circumcised. He was counted as righteous not because of what he did. But because he believed God. He didn't just believe in God. No, he believed God. When God told that old man, you will be a daddy. And the boy will come from your body and Sarah's body. He believed God. Uh, The word believe in the Hebrew is where we actually get the English word, amen. You ever been to a church and the preacher's preaching away and someone says, amen. It probably wasn't a white church, but I heard (laughs) that there are churches where that can happen, okay? And what that person is saying is, what the preacher just said, I say the same thing. So when God said, from your body will come a son, Abe said, amen. I say what you just said. When reason said, no way, Abraham said, yes, God. And there was no tangible evidence For his expectation, apart from this audacious promise. In other words, Abe knew his body was reproductively dead. He knew that 90-something-year-old men can't get women pregnant. He knew his body couldn't produce life. Just like you and I are spiritually dead and we can't produce righteousness. So what did he do? Did he go back into the tent and say, Sarah, we got to make a baby. So I'm going to change my diet. And I'm buying you yoga pants. (laughs) And I'm going down to the pharmacy and I'm getting a bottle of blue pills. Yes, I said it, and it's okay if you laugh. Because the story is funny. 
These two old people started acting like a couple acts that want to have a baby. Even though they know their bodies are reproductively dead. They started acting consistent with the confidence that God will keep his promise. And so Paul tells the rest of the story. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith didn't weaken, even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead. And so was Sarah's womb. But he never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too. Assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him. The one who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. And Paul is not saying Abraham was saved because of his faith. That would still be the be good enough road. He wasn't saved because of his faith. He was saved by his faith. In other words, it's not that his faith was good enough. It was that he trusted in a God that was perfectly good. That word count comes from the world of accounting. I took one business course in college. I took a freshman accounting class so I could learn how to balance my checkbook. And I learned this one thing that I think all of you can grasp. That when you track your finances, you have a ledger. And it basically has two columns. You have the credit column where you're going to put your assets, where you're going to put your gains. And then you have a debit column where you're going to keep track of your losses or your debts. So Paul says, when you say amen to God, when you hear the news that what God has done in Jesus, dying for your sins and coming back from the dead, and you say, amen, God is going to take the righteousness of Jesus, and he's going to put it on the credit side of your ledger. And then all that junk on your debit side is going to get erased by blood. Now that's a road you can count on to get you where you want to be. So don't count on being good enough as the basis of your salvation. It's not about your goodness, but count instead on Christ's goodness being credited to your account when you believe. You see, the good news is not that we can be saved. Every religion 
teaches that you can be saved and gives you a manual to tell you how to build a good enough road. That is not good news. The good news is that we can be saved by trusting in what God has done and that he will keep his promises instead of hoping that we can do enough. We don't reach God by being good. God reaches us through the goodness of Jesus. I'll look at it one more time in a different translation. Because I'm about to share a point. I want you to hang on for five minutes. That is going to help somebody. It helped me this week. It helped me with issue that 40 years ago put my soul in constant turmoil. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were not written for him alone. But also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. You see, salvation is more than forgiveness. Now listen to me. It's going to open the eyes for some of you. Now, salvation is forgiveness. And when you put faith in Jesus, all that junk on your debit side of your ledger gets erased once and for all. Because when Jesus on the cross said, it is finished, or even literally, it is paid for, he rebuked every notion that your salvation is an installment plan. And if you'll just keep doing and keep doing and keep doing a little bit more debt, a little bit more debt, a little bit more debt, we'll finally, maybe someday before you die, all your debt will be gone. That's not what happens. You are forgiven. Your debt side is cleansed by blood. But salvation is more than that. It's more than forgiveness. It's also being given Christ perfect record what did he say when we believe we are credited with righteousness in other words Jesus not only died the death that we should have died but Jesus lived the life that we should have lived and when we believe God and what he has done in Jesus God then looks at us as if We had lived Jesus' life. God sees goodness in us. Because he sees us in his good son. Years ago, they tell a story that Abraham Lincoln was out in the country walking to town and a wagon came along. And he stopped the wagon and asked the driver, would you be good enough to take my overcoat into town for me? And the wagon driver said, I'd be happy to, but how are you going to get it back? And Lincoln replied, that's easy. I intend to stay inside my coat. (laughs) And I have confidence that I'm going to go to the place I want to go. Because I'm going to stay inside. I'm going to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. This is so important because you see, as a young man, intellectually, I knew, okay, I've been forgiven of my sins, but I just haven't done enough. I haven't read the Bible as much as I could have. 
I haven't loved people as well as I should have. I haven't given at every opportunity. I haven't shared my faith. I haven't served every chance I had. And I lived in this terrible soul torment of, I know I'm forgiven, but I haven't done enough. And I wish 40 years ago I would have understood that my salvation isn't just my junk being erased by blood, but I am credited with the righteousness of Jesus. And all this is possible because of God and the promise he made. Paul says one more time, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what God did. God says, I promise, I promise that Jesus died the death you should have died and you'll be forgiven. I promise that Jesus lived the life you should have lived and you'll receive credit for it. I promise. This is not a road built by the lowest bidder. This is a salvation you can count on. And the enemy knows the truth of what I'm preaching better than you do. And so you've been there. When the thought came into your mind. About that thing you wish you could go back and undo. That big regret or regrets. The thought comes into your mind of all the times you could have done more, but you didn't. And Satan's trying to attack your confidence. He's trying to make you think you can't count on your salvation. Why? He cannot steal your salvation because that's up to God and God keeps his promises. What he can do is steal your joy and your assurance so that you become a timid Weak believer that never witnesses and shares your faith because you're not even sure yourself. So when that happens and the devil lies and insinuates, do what Abraham did. Believe God. Take God's faithfulness into account. The God whose strength overcomes your weakness. The God who brings life out of deadness. And when reason says, no way, may faith say, yes, God. Okay, so I'm going to close with a verse that's going to get you excited. I know you're white people, but you might even want to say amen when I'm through, okay? 
Now all glory to God. Who is able to keep you from falling away. And will bring you with great joy. Into his glorious presence. Without a single fault. I heard a story of a businessman before the days of cell phones. And he's in the Midwest. And he's not sure where he is. So he waves at a farmer on a tractor to get off and says, hey, friend, if I stay going down this road, will I go to Kansas City? And the farmer says, I don't know. Well, if I stay on this road, will I wind up in St. Louis? And the farmer says, I don't know. Well, what big city will I come to if I stay on this road? And the farmer says, I don't know. And the perturbed businessman says, you don't know much, do you? And the farmer said, I know I ain't lost. (laughs) And if someone would ask me, if you were to die tonight, why should God let you into his heaven? I would say, because I'm not justifying myself. God's already justified me. And I believe that God has already done what he promised he would do. And when he shall come with trumpet sound, I will then in him be found. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. I'm counting on it. And you can too. Let's bow our heads. And so God, I just pray that this message today will bless a heart. And free a soul. I know I'm talking to people that have lived in bondage to fear. They've lived in slavery to uncertainty. They've listened to too many lies and insinuations. And they have been on the wrong road. And I'm praying God today that your Holy Spirit can penetrate their heart. Expose the lie. That we can receive the joy of our salvation. Because we're counting on you to keep your promise. And we're believing. We're saying amen to what you have already done. Give us this joy and this boldness today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So can I ask you all to stand up? If you're on our response team this morning, would you take your place, please? And we're going to offer the gift of prayer and counsel if that's your need. But we're also going to offer another gift. It's called baptism. You see, Abraham and Sarah, they knew that what they were doing, trying to have a baby, wasn't why they had a baby. They were just showing faith in God to do a miracle. That's what baptism does. Water does not wash away sin. It's just a declaration of faith that God can do a miracle. When we declare amen to the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we're offering prayer and we're offering baptism. And we would love for you to come while we celebrate the righteousness of God.